Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we are discussing the four-year-old version and Lingua Franca, two films about women of colour by women of colour filmmakers that you can find on Netflix. Before we get into all of that, though, huge, huge congratulations to the Ringer and Gimlet unions for getting a contract. Yay. So happy. Finally, bargaining is over. Everyone, uh, unionize your workplaces. I'm sure both of the bargaining committees at the Ringer and Gimlet have been through hell and back this week, but they did it. Um, and it's going to be incredible for both of these workplaces. Other than that, great news. <laughs> and other than obviously the fantastic news that keeps trickling in of everyone getting vaccinated slowly and surely. What have you been up to this week, Jenny? What's been going on? Um, not much, except I have like this really terrible itch of, I guess, consumerism and com- consumption and oh, uh, yeah. everything thereof. I, I just want to, I want to buy something online, but I don't know. I don't actually need to buy anything and I don't know mm. what I want. And it's, of course, like, I shouldn't just be like giving into this urge because it is an inch in the back of my mind. But here we are. I've been conditioned to love online shopping and to love things. To love know? things. I love yeah. things. Unfortunately, we are in a materialist culture and I'm very much victim to that. Marx did not consider that we love things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it is bread and roses, so it's okay to have the roses, you know. It's okay. You sure. Can, you can have that urge. Has have you bought anything that you really love that I guess like now that quarantine is coming to a close (laughs) hopefully fingers crossed yeah what have you bought during your quarantine time that has really done it for you like what's been your favorite quarantine purchase i have bought quite a few things including um like a stand mixer during that fucking insane Mm. sale where everyone i know was buying one last last year um but probably my favorite is like the Nintendo Switch, which I bought for my birthday last year, like right before, like as quarantine was hitting. And I've just used that thing so much. And Excellent. thank you. Thank you, Nintendo. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, what about you? Any fave quarantine purchases? Oh man, I've bought so much. Um, you know, I'm going to go with three things. Okay. Okay. It's a lot. I know I should just do one, but. Do it. Some of these, are, some of these are recent purchases, and some of them have really gotten me through quarantine. Mm. Uh, the first thing is stationery in general. Oh. I've been, yeah, I've I've been into stationery ever since I was a little kid, and maybe me getting back into it right now is just me trying to comfort my inner child in its panic and constant state of anxiety. But um, other than that, I bought a nighty that makes me look very dickensian i've got to say <laughs> it's been really cool to just walk around in a a full like floor length nighty if i catch myself in the mirror in the middle of the night going to get water i do scare myself a little bit you're like hey, what's that fucking ghost doing here yeah i it's super yeah and like i've got really long black hair too so it's just like <laughs> right um <laughs> but uh that's been really nice i feel very regal in that um and then a quilt because you know i'm 70 years old <laughs> inside Wonderful. quilts are great it, i don't have the hand sewn ones because i can't afford them but it's been keeping me very warm like we've barely put on our heat in our bedroom mm-hmm. uh, because we've been so toasty under that quilt so i would highly recommend these things obviously i think that last thing is a bit 
it's a bit moot now that we're going into the summer months, but you can always yeah. use, you know, save a quilt for the the cold months. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get more into bedding and this goes completely off the rails. <laughs> what did you watch this week, Jenny? How has your week in TV and film been like? Uh, so this thing for me, it's a film. It is the 40-year-old version. And that is version, not virgin. <laughs> um, but the 40-year-old version, um, it's a film on Netflix. It is written, directed by, produced by, and starring Rada Blank as a black playwright who was once considered like a rising star in her field, but she is now teaching high school drama, struggling to get her work produced the way that she wants. She's almost 40 and she kind of feels like everything's at a dead end for her. Um, her mom recently died, so she's still grieving that uh, loss. And she decides in the midst of kind of this, I guess you might call it a midlife crisis, to reinvent herself as a rapper. Mm. Yeah, so the the film is like deeply personal to Blank. It was loosely inspired by her life. Like, you know, the apartment in Harlem that they film in, it is actually her own apartment. Her brother is her real brother in the film. Her mom's artwork is real. Her stage name as a rapper, Rodimus Prime, is one that she actually used. So, so yeah, all these little kind of details that um, you learn if you read, you know, interviews with her. So very much like kind of taking a page from her real life. But, you know, in actuality, I would say like Rada Blank has had more success than her character has. Like she's written for multiple TV shows. Mm -hmm. um, she's done quite a bit. But still, it's kind of you could consider it, you know, maybe a loosely inspired semi autobiographical film. Yeah. And it was uh, originally conceived as a web series that didn't get made. Um, eventually it was produced by Lena Waithe, of course, mm -hmm. who a lot of people are familiar with. It premiered and won an award at Sundance, immediately got a Netflix deal, and was released last fall. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, when did you watch this originally, Valen? I watched this um, a couple of months back, actually. I think when it, a few weeks after it just dropped on Netflix, and we had gotten mm -hmm. like got the screeners. for your consideration screeners and yeah. stuff. Yeah, so I, 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 it was already on my radar, and I watched it back then. I liked it. What did you think of it? I would say overall, I like it. Also, it's very. I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but it did feel kind of at least like Novelle in a way. Like mm -hmm. you don't see this viewpoint that often. You don't see, you know, this, this subject matter, like, like midlife crises often get depicted in a certain way on screen. And this is like a, a different way from what we see from a lot of white filmmakers. Um, and there are some themes throughout it that are really resonant. And I think uh, worth a lot of discussion. Um, one of the themes of course is like, the idea of becoming a sellout, like as a person mm -hmm. who creates art, who wants to put this this art and this meaningful creative work out into the world, like at what point does making compromises or doing a project that you maybe don't really like, you know, is that selling out or is that just enabling you to do what you actually really want to do the next time that something comes around? Yeah, yeah. And I, I completely agree about the refreshing aspect of that crisis, especially because we have seen it a lot with other white filmmakers and white yeah. male fil filmmakers. I think Baumbach is like, he's done a couple of films about that. You know, mm -hmm. I think While We're Young with Ben Stiller is, is one of them. But to have it be in this, as in this way, especially I think for Rada Blank, she really taps into that. You know, as a woman of color, and I think as a black woman, especially like once you're given that opportunity, if you don't flip that into something bigger, are you ever going to get that opportunity again? 
Yeah. And then and grappling with that, you know, and feeling right. like that feeling of failure is it feels a little bit more damning. So yeah, she really taps into that. I think like my favorite thing about it was just like even though the seriousness of those themes and and the realness of them, they feel very real and you watch that character and you know we're a, a, almost a decade slightly under a decade for me behind that and it's like you're kind of scared that that's where you'll end up as well and you're worried about what yeah. you would do too um despite all of that the seriousness of all of that i really loved how funny it was because there's some great humor there is a lightheartedness to it much like francis ha as well that's like another mumbuck situation it a is in black and white b is about a woman in crisis and c is actually really fucking funny and that that it, i just appreciate it that i i really love that genre of film quite a bit yeah i definitely laughed out loud a couple of times while watching this film yeah. which is rare um also cringed like had like this uh like a physical full body cringe a couple of times um yeah. while watching this i'm just like the visceral nature of like some of the secondhand embarrassment of the mm -hmm. the awkward situation she finds herself in um but yeah it is a film that it captures a lot of this aspect of this like fear and anxiety and grief on her part mm -hmm. um all these things that are happening and sort of i guess like you said for people in our age group or like moving further up in our age group who are in this kind of industry um these are all very real concerns that we have like for me i guess it's not even really it's not a one-to-one -one comparison because I think like so far writing um, or like media industry, kind of like nonfiction journalistic writing or whatever it is that I fucking do um, yeah. blogging essentially. <laughs> yeah. um, there is like a constant question of like, you know, how much do the things that I produce, how much do they have to kind of be around a certain subject matter? Um, mm. How often do I have to center a specific audience, like speak to a, often a largely white audience or by turns mm. if I'm speaking to like an Asian audience um, because I have a lot of interest in writing about like my race and stuff, um, mm. you know, does this have to dictate the way that I write about it and like the, the themes that I want to explore, the stories I want to tell? Yeah. Um, all these are very real questions, but yeah, I don't, how are you approaching the idea of like, career and sellout um and did you see this film sort of reflect the anxieties that you have about you know your present or your future definitely i think with her being considered a rising star for yeah. something that i'm not I, that, that's the thing that I, I wanted to know a little bit more of was like what work had she produced to make her the rising star and now does she feel like she's far away from that or can't produce that again because i think the thing that really resonated with me and like tapped into my anxieties as well was like, so she's, her best friend is her manager, right? Mm -hmm. Is it manager or agent or like, uh, I don't know what he does. I think it's, it's agent. So he's um, right. a, a Korean American man, agent Peter, I think is the character's name. Yeah. And it, so they're, they're best friends. They grew up together, went to prom together and she was his beard back then. Yeah. What's interesting about their relationship is that he really wants the best for her yeah and he you know offers and does stuff for her to to make sure that she gets a bit of a leg up and gets these opportunities and there's a part of her that doesn't want to let him down and there's also the other part of her that is like i need to eat like not food but like money like i need money i need to kind of get my name out there again and i don't know if i have the willpower to question these two things 
if I was in her position. That's the thing that I was thinking about. Was like, if I was her age and this is what I was doing and I was offered this opportunity, there's a part of me that might just straight up sell out and not even... Like, I might talk about it to my friends, but at the end of the day, I would get this play done. I think most people would. And I think... I mean, yeah. the idea of being a sellout also is so contentious. Yeah. Because, like, what is selling out when, like, literally, like, you need to pay rent? Yeah. Who can afford to, quote unquote, sell out or not sell out? And yeah. yeah, it is like this kind of dance between doing the work that you, you really like, honestly, is your passion and you yearn yeah. to do versus kind of the, I, I guess what you could say compared to in like the filmmaking world right now, like mm-hmm. people go and marvel. Um, yeah. Chloe Zhao, for every Marvel film she does, she gets to do a Nomadland. And is that something that we, you know, think is selling out? Um, maybe, I guess. Um, but is that like, if she hadn't done the Marvel thing, you know, would she have been able to get an opportunity to do something mm-hmm. like Nomadland? Things like that, where it's like, yeah, yeah it's such a kind of complicated conversation. Yeah, um, especially because it feels like a constant tit for tat. Yeah. Where it's one in, one out for, I think, women of color, black creatives, black women, especially in, in the creative industry, where it feels like they have to give something in, in order to take it. It's not just like a yeah. carte blanche. You can't just make something the way that you want it to. And that, that is the case for a lot of creators of color. You know, they have to fashion themselves towards this outward gaze. But like the, the most interesting thing that I guess got lost in the mania of is this for white people? Is this for, you know, black people? Is this for me? Like in all of that, what got lost in it was her approaching a black theater owner, like the community theater owner, him being kind of a dick to her. Yeah. <laughs> like really dismissive. And then came to her play that she eventually produced that, you know, won't give it away, wasn't the way she wanted it to be. And then like, obviously rightly critiqued her, but it was also like he also wasn't kind to her about what she wanted to do. I found that little mini arc to be pretty interesting because there's also a lot of hostility within these creative communities of color. Like, Mm. they'll be a dick to you and not help you, and then they'll come to your shit and then critique it anyway. And then it's like, all right, so who's winning here? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like an interesting tension because, as you said, when she went to him with her concerns, which were namely like... I need to pay my rent. Is there any way to like kind of turn this into a bigger thing? Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of like, no, he kind of more like, you know, this is art for art's sake, for the people, mm-hmm. for our ancestors, which is kind of like one. Yeah, that's like one extreme end of the spectrum. But yeah, it is that sort of tension of, you know, when you create, are you creating it for your community? Can it have even as much impact if it's for your own community versus if you bring it outside the community towards a larger audience? Yeah. And like the purity, the kind of like purity of art um, for art's sake versus, you know, yeah, people need to earn money from their work, yeah. even as creatives. It yeah. is like a definitely a tension that's there. And I, I think, yeah, I can see what you're saying about like even like intra community, a little bit of rivalry or competition or at least like hostility and, mm-hmm a way that is probably not as noticeable to people outside that community yeah. itself. You feel like sometimes like, oh, there are actually more finite resources um, mm-hmm. since they're only going to let, you know, maybe five of us at any given point be the the voices for this community or whatever, yeah. be the the public figureheads for this creative community. Um, so you feel maybe at points there, like there's like resentment that, mm-hmm. you know, someone else got that spot ahead of you or resentment that, 
you know, someone you feel like didn't deserve it was ahead of you or that someone who's no longer good, but is still just like appreciated by like a white audience. Um, they yeah. got where are able to get it there. Yeah. It's like a very messy sort of feeling and, and relationships that you have to negotiate through that. I think a lot of people might not realize because they think it's everything is like solidarity or everything is like community support and yeah. maybe in, a, in an ideal world. Sure. But this is like, the messy reality of kind of having to fight for the scraps that are out there. Yeah. And no, not even, you know, they don't see it because of solidarity. It's like, it's, it's the problem with diversity and asking for it. And this is like a, with 40 year old version, like she gets into that where she is putting on a play that is about something that is important to her, aka gentrification. But, and, and it's celebrated by the producers. It's celebrated by the director who are both white because they think that they're really doing something for diversity. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's the problem with art. It's the problem with creativity and how it relates to capitalism. <laughs> and it's just, it's a whole mess. And I think, you know, centering it through Rada is interesting. Other, other than all of that, the thing that really spoke to me, the thing that I was a little bit nervous about <laughs> watching when I was watching it, was her spiraling into rapping and wanting to rap and being like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Because script writing for me came late in my 20s, very late in my 20s. And I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I love this. I love it so much. It brings me so much joy. And there's a huge part of me that's like, are are you sure? (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. And seeing that and seeing all the people around her that are like, are you sure you want to rap was, was very, yeah, a cringe was definitely one of it. And I guess like I felt the secondhand embarrassment from her, which I think was intentional. I think she intentionally wanted it to be that way. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. yeah. I really loved the like street interview, just like being dance with people from her neighborhood, from like the old woman on her street to like the Asian shop owner um, to who are just like, kind of like both the the chorus as well as yeah. um, just like a sounding board and also like part of like a love letter to New York. But yeah, when they're yeah. just kind of like giving her the skeptical like, oh, really? That that's what you're going to do? Yeah. Um those are some of my my favorite moments, I think. I mean, so much of the story is devoted to kind of that that arc of like trying to produce a mixtape, working out to performances, her budding relationship with um the music producer D who like provides the beats to her. And I wish there were like the uh, one of the my frustrations with this film is that there's kind of so many different threads, including, you know, this, um, her playwriting, her mother's death, and how she sort of avoids, you know, going around to her apartment to see her brother and, like, mm-hmm. clean up their mom's roommate uh, belongings. Um, her relationship with, like, Peter Kim, her agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these different things. And I think it's definitely because this is, like, drawn from her real life in where like where there there were all these different sort of threads that intersected and like combined to make this greater whole but like in this film for instance i wish that kind of we had seen a little bit more about this emotional backbone of her mother's death or like Mm -hmm. her relationship with with peter kim um you know at one point they get into an argument where she kind of whips out the the accusation like uh, you're not korean enough you're ashamed of you know your koreanness um Mm -hmm. you have some issue there and it just doesn't like hit mm-hmm. as much as I think it would in her real life, like whatever story mm-hmm. this is drawn from. Yeah. Um, there's like a history there that we're not really privy to as an audience. So that mm-hmm. just some of these scenes are like 
they're so personal that maybe there's just like a little bit more of the the context for the the audience who isn't familiar with those personal details. Um, yeah. So those didn't like truly come out as much. Um, but I guess that's like part of the nature of making a film that is so close to home and like semi autobiographical totally. or like loosely based off your life. Yeah. There are things in there you just can't like really explain because um, mm-hmm. they're just like the way they happen in your life. Yeah. But I guess it's like a filmmaking choice. It's like a, things could go in another direction too. Yeah. I see what you mean. I think I agree in that this should have been a TV show, like maybe a limited series situation. Oh, like, the, yeah. I mean, she had that. That like ten episode web series and yeah, I mean, it, and that makes and that makes more sense to me. I didn't mind it so much because the chemistry that she had with everyone mm-hmm. felt so natural. Like the relationship with her and Peter, like her best friend, felt really organic. They really felt like they were best friends. Her and Dee, Dee is gorgeous, and yeah. their little like chemistry was fantastic. We talk about bad chemistry. That was excellent chemistry. He's so good. So it didn't it didn't matter too much to me because I was convinced by the relationships. I would want more though, and I think in that sense you're absolutely right. Like I just wanted more of that. Uh, this was definitely a mini series. Yeah, you can see those roots. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah. The only other thing among like. Again, like a film that I think is overall definitely worth seeing. I don't know if you felt the same way, but mm. it almost seemed like the regarding the play where she's sort of like up against this this wealthy white producer, the the white director, the white actor, the white audiences, the mm. the play that came as a result that she herself was like not proud of. Some of it was like I think there definitely it rang true the 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 kind of feelings and frustrations and tensions, but also like. Oh, some of it was like so cartoonishly like bad in terms of just like the of course the resulting play and the choices and everything um parts of it were just so like cringe that it's like is this how it works like actually like mm-hmm. i don't know it, it took me out a little bit because i was like there's no way it would be this bad or like there's no way like you don't have to write this sort of yeah. um folksy southern accent into your own play that like your your main actress is like complaining about yeah i was like you can i know you like are feeling totally disheartened right now maybe that's the whole point but like you can actually like write out some of these like things that got shoehorned in but maybe i don't know i don't work in theater (laughs) maybe that's like how it is and it's just like the wallet like the pocketbook of the white producers like so much that you feel you can't do anything but yeah um i wonder i would i would love to hear from people who have like more experienced the world on if like some yeah, of these things like if you can actually you know it doesn't have to be this way yeah i do think that it's a little bit just a touch just a hair too ham-fisted in yeah like the lines and stuff i think you could have easily have communicated that this is a classically just some white bullshit that they would say <laughs> without it being as obvious as, as it was. However, plays are corny, plays are super, super out there over with whatever messaging that they're trying to send. Yeah, even more so than film and TV, which way I guess more. is maybe a reason I, I haven't seen that many plays. And unfortunately, the thing about theater when it comes to stuff about race is that they, they are even more obvious and overt with the messaging yeah it's uh, it kind of tracked to me in my head yeah it i think some of the the comedic notes that that she was trying to communicate was a little bit too obvious of a joke and there could have been a way to make it make the insidiousness of 
of racism be a, more funny, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, and not so much cartoonishly out there. Yeah, um, like the, the, the soy milk thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> little, just like a hair too much, where it just felt like a little bit like maybe five years ago, but yeah. now, yeah, I mean, overall, still refreshing watch, I think, mm-hmm. especially if you're in like the creative industry, like you have sort of your own projects going on, you have yeah. a lot of these similar kind of anxieties that we talked about at length totally, um totally. i think this is definitely a, a film that you can find a lot to relate to uh what about you Pelin? what did you watch this week so also going off of netflix um i came across this film randomly when i was just reading reviews for stuff didn't hear much about it Not but my pick of the week is called lingua franca It is written and directed and starring Isabel Sandoval. This is her third feature film. Um, I'd never really heard of her before until until this film, actually. But it's about an undocumented trans-Filipina called Olivia, who works as a live-in carer to an elderly woman called Olga in South Brooklyn. So I didn't know what to expect when I watched this film, and I actually came away from it feeling pretty satisfied. And within even the first, like, ten minutes, I was sold on it um so to kind of give you a little bit more information olivia is essentially trying to fix her immigration status in her attempt to fix it it's a little bit muddied once olga the the woman that she's taking care of her grandson alex who's played by Eamon farron comes to basically share the caring duties and live in the same house so live in his grandmother's house the americans fans will recognize handsome as fuck arkady ivanovich played by lev gorn um and the sex and city fans will recognize magda aka the late and great lynn cohen who plays olga who broke my fucking heart in this film (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but I really like this film. I do have some qualms with it, which we'll get into later, but I just love, love the way that it's shot. And huge shout out to the cinematographer, Isaac Banks. This is apparently his first feature film that he's DP'd for, which is insane. Um, what did you think of it? I didn't read any of the, the summaries or anything before I watched this. All I knew was the sort of synopsis. And yeah, I liked the film a lot. It felt really sad in a lot of ways, which is just like, of course, perpetual mood. Um, but I thought it represented like the, it's definitely like a capital I issues film, but it, it represents and like talks about those issues in a really personal, surprisingly emotional way. Everything from immigration to, you know, just like Filipino caretakers, of which there are so many in this country. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, being a trans person and you know, kind of having to do whatever it takes to prevent being deported back to a country in which, you know, your existence is not even, you know, allowed in political climates right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are just so many issues here, but they, it kind of melds together in what is a really sad kind of romantic drama, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really impressive um, for dealing with so many of these really serious threads. Yeah. And the romance isn't even 
I guess that th- there's a realism to the romance as well. Yeah. Uh, both from the situation that they're in, but on an emotional discrepancy level as well. Yeah. It's really sad to watch. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that hit me the most, like I talked about the cinematography, but like the way I haven't really seen much American cinema touch upon the feeling that European cinema gives me, which is that the European cinema just has like a real grip on visual grimness of the city, whatever that might be. It might be Paris. It might be London, but uh, Yasujiro Ozu is also another fantastic director showcasing that kind of visual element. We see that here, and this is an independent movie. This was made in 16 days, not that big of a budget, and she pulled it off, man. Like, it's mainly around most of the Russian Jewish neighborhoods in New York, so it's mm, Coney Brighton Island, Beach. Brighton Beach, yeah. I live near there. Like, I, I live, like, a couple of train stops away. And I've got to say, that's basically what it looks like. And it just in terms of like the feeling that it elicits, especially in the night, just gorgeous. And even like the interiors of Olga's house that Olivia and Alex stay in, it's just, you really get a feel for that immigrant grandmother <laughs> house. It's uh, so lived in. Yeah, it's incredibly lived in. It's so like, there's so many like uh, textures and patterns going on. It's interesting because, like, visually speaking, you really get the hominess that envelops Olivia because that's kind of like that's where she's safe. And that's kind of juxtaposed with the exteriors of Coney Island and Brighton Beach, where it's a little bit more blue, a little bit yeah, more gray. Colder tones. Yeah. Okay. And, and, it still envelops her because of, you know, the streets with the train tracks that, that kind of like tower over you. But it's a, it's a kind of different envelopment where it's a little bit more daunting. It's a little bit more encroaching. It's just gorgeous. And like, like the second you watch it, you're like, Oh yeah, this woman knows how to direct, man. <laughs> like, so another thing that I really liked, we talked about this previously when we were talking about the dig, the use of ellipses, uh, where, talking happens over visuals denoting time passing but it's also denoting like an emotional state really great editing yeah uh, was there were there any moments that really that you liked yeah i like i think in particular the how it opened and ended was was very strong this sort of full circle moment mm. and then the way that olga this like little old woman um you know moves throughout her house from like peeling an orange at her table to like that repetition of like suddenly getting up feeling something's not right you know as her Mm -hmm. as her memory or or her mind are going and feeling just that sense of realism like you said i think it's it's really familiar to anyone who has an older relative um maybe someone who's lived in a place for generations and you know there are roots there but there's also you know just the precarity of growing older in a place where there's not a whole lot of care given to older people but here like there is at least like caretakers from like the philippines and other nations it's so prevalent in the u.s like this is one of the ways in which you know these immigrants can get jobs and like come here um often they get trapped in these situations um but really seeing the way that olivia handles olga and like anticipates her needs and knows how to care for her mm-hmm. um, in such a tender but efficient way. I thought that was really beautiful, kind of in contrast with, at the beginning at least, like how the grandson Alex has like no fucking idea what to do. Yeah. And yeah. just like watches in awe as this basically stranger he he doesn't really know 
takes such good care of his babushka who who yeah. loves him completely but who he kind of traumatizes in a way yeah and and in his selfishness forgets to put her first yeah i i completely agree with that that there's something so tender about the two of them together olivia and olga and speaking of the grandson alex he i th- i found him to be pretty interesting as a depiction of masculinity um mm-hmm. i think there was a lot of care put into him as a character which i think made the performance by the actor all the more disappointing i just think oh, i it, it, tell me more i don't know I, he was fine he he was totally fine i just would have liked I hate to say like someone that was a little bit less macho American, but I guess that's what they're like. That's what these men are like. I was going to say he's almost too handsome in certain lights, while in other lights he's like... Kind of ugly. Kind of ugly. Yeah. Yeah, which is very interesting. Yeah. um, Just as like a a choice of of an actor. Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. I think, I think I would have wanted someone with a little bit more sadness behind his eyes. Like he looked a little bit too perky. Um, mm. but that's just me. But I, I really liked his character mainly because he, he is someone that needs to prove himself. He thinks that the way to, you know, fill that void is through Olivia. And in any other setting, any kind of romantic drama, that's romantic. <laughs> Literally just that's it. Like, you want to be depended on by this person and that's how you feel that you have found purpose as as a man or even as a woman like women do this too but in this instance that is not the case that is actually a red flag because it is a red flag in the real life in real in 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 every instance you should never use someone as your purpose in life that's a problem of masculinity that I thought was tackled pretty well. Like he does some things in the second half of the film that don't make any sense initially, but then when you think about it, you're like, "You fucking idiot!" Of course that wasn't going to work, and of course, yeah, what are you doing? And like, you know, if you think it through it, like as like a form of psychology, yeah, it's um, yeah, 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 yeah. I found it like tragic mm-hmm. in a way. Like it's. At the moments when you see how they can be so, you know, Alex and Olivia, they can be so sweet and just like this fragile care that, you know, Olivia is not receiving elsewhere. (laughs) Like you want to feel so hopeful, but at the same time, there's just like a a mismatch of where they both are, you know, mentally, emotionally, what they think the other person needs, or rather what he thinks she needs. And yeah, it's like you could imagine, especially like, you know, there's a scene where they kind of Alex is drunkenly like thinking of some future in the world where he's like, you know, how many kids would you want to have? Like, I would want four kids. Yeah. It's so sad um, because you can feel like really in a completely alternative timeline reality, maybe they could fall in love. Maybe they could have this Mm -hmm. this beautiful family and this this life that he is dreaming up for himself. Yeah. And that she, he thinks like she must be dreaming of also. Yeah. It's so tragic and, and sad. Yeah. And let's talk about Olivia because I think she is someone that, so Sandoval plays Olivia and 50% of it, I think her performance is excellent because it calls for some kind of, you know, inner melancholy, some standoffishness and guardedness in the way that she protects herself. Mm-hmm. And then the other 50%, I think there's a, part of it that is a bit missing would like to see a little bit more emotion on her uh that feels more natural on the day-to-day um, oh i see what you're saying yeah, yeah there, there were just times where it was a little bit too aloof for me yeah um but overall i really liked olivia as a character as well because not only is she 
I would say an emotionally intelligent female protagonist when it comes to matters of love. I like that in her mind, she understands her status as an undocumented woman means that relationships are transactional. Yeah. And she is far more comfortable with that being overt. And the problem with Alex is that he is hiding... Even I think deep down he knows and he understands that it's also transactional, but he is trying to disguise it with love and with meaning and protection. Yeah, but and I think he like he fools he fools himself. Also. He fools like himself. He, yeah, he thinks that it's yep. it is that or some hint of that. Um, Even though yeah. what he does, it's such an insidious thing to do, and he does that knowing that it is transactional. That by doing this thing, that she will need him. His, you know, urge to feel needed by someone, it's selfish. It doesn't take her into account. It doesn't take her safety into account. And um, that's, that. I don't think even think that that's like an undocumented woman problem. I think that's like a trans woman's problem in general. A trans woman that is in love with a, a cis man. It's heartbreaking because Olivia knows this and Olivia kind of understands it pretty quickly. Yeah, she is much more clear-eyed about this. Absolutely. She has to be. She can't, she can't afford to be kidding herself yeah. about these things. Um, because she, her fear of deportation is constant, which I think this kind of, this film communicates throughout it. What did you think about the way that immigration was approached through Trump? Cause I think his voice comes up quite a bit. Um, what did you think about that yeah. choice? Uh, when was this film made again? Uh, it, it, I think it was filmed in 2019, came out in 2020. Okay. I think so. That makes a little more sense, I guess. Like, looking back at it, kind of like in, in 2021, this a completely different sort of context um, in some ways, um, but where Trump is just this, like, hostile, ma- malevolent presence in this, mm-hmm. it's very much, like, of the time, and I think, sure, like, for completely legitimate reasons, but it was not the most, or I think it, it doesn't help if in, like, establishing a sort of timelessness, giving it a sort of, like, longer-lasting, more evergreen impact. The issues will always be around like yeah. the, i don't yeah. know how much like uh, we can only hope that you know things improve but you know j- even just like the socially like these issues will remain for mm-hmm. for a very long time yeah i mean um it, harsh immigration has been an issue post 9-11 right so it's not yeah. even biden it's not even trump it's not even no Bush. it's it's several presidents back yeah um, i agree i think i think that's uh, the thing that everyone was talking about when trump was first elected was about the art that would come out during the Trump era and how like fantastic it would be because everyone's pissed and that's how they communicate it. This mm. is an example of that. And I, I'm not mad at it. That's the thing because of the creator. It's a woman of color, you know, and it's a trans woman of color and they're trying to speak in, in this very broad subject matter. They're trying to speak to a singular experience, not even singular, but like a, a little bit more specific. It's just, I thought at some point, some scenes didn't need to be there, mm. but I do understand why. Like, it's like, did we need to see the ice dickheads putting people in a van? Maybe, I guess, because it did, it was happening, but there's just something so much more sinister about the monster that you can't see. Right. Uh, that's just a preference. That's a personal preference for me. Yeah. But it, yeah, I see what you're saying. It does kind of like, you know, for a film that is like, like we talked about before, like it's, it's definitely an issues film, but mm-hmm. through this personal lens, those kind of moments like tip it a little bit more into the kind of almost like a news report or documentary style yeah. of like, you know, issues. Like these are the things that you need to see. Timeliness. Um, 
yeah like yeah. society and stuff yeah. like that <laughs> we live in a society <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um but like yeah like while they definitely hold true it's like more of a matter of like kind of artistic license and and how exactly you pepper these throughout and maybe in this case like for us like personal preference it wasn't as successful like some of those moments Mm -hmm. um but maybe other people think differently i don't know i don't know um i will say i loved the sex scenes Mm. uh some of the more sensual sex scenes i've seen in a minute so thank you isabel love them there's uh there's a masturbation scene and there's also a sex scene both really highlight her body and her sensuality which is obviously radical because this is a trans woman that we're talking about The way that in the sex scene, especially that we don't see Alex at all, really, we just see he could be anyone. We see the back of his head, Mm. his arms, his hands. Uh, but the, the camera, which at that point is handheld is focusing on her face and her breasts and her womanhood. And she's just like in pure ecstasy and it's so sensual. I really loved it. I I, mm-hmm. I would like more sex scenes. Obviously, I've been talking about bringing Horny back. So um, <laughs> that's just my... I'm continuing this political agenda on my end. Um, other than that, I will say two two final things. One thing that I didn't really like and one thing that I did like. I thought the third act was a bit clumsy. Uh, throughout, there was an issue with the dialogue, I think didn't really matter too much it was just that when it came to the third and final act especially the final few scenes i wouldn't say it it didn't ruin it for me because i still love this film but it did it does kind of leave you with a bit of a taste in your mouth where you're just like oh man i just wish it didn't end on that scene or i wish we got to see more of olivia as the final thing but other than that huge shout out to the needle drop of smoke gets in your eyes by the platters one of my favorite songs to use in TV and film. Anyway, if, you, if you're a filmmaker, you have taste when you drop that song. I'll just say that. But I also really did, like you mentioned, the way that it began with the call to her mother. And it also ends with a call to her mother. And that's just kind of like, I don't know, that's that's the that's so specific to the immigrant experience. You know, just trying to be the dutiful daughter. So shout, yeah. out, shout out to dutiful daughters everywhere. Um, and being responsible for, you know, as with so many immigrant stories like having to send money back home and yeah, like having packages. people rely on you entirely yeah yeah so i would highly recommend this uh i know that it's kind of rare that we offer up independent movies to watch but it's on netflix so you know get your little art house situation going on uh watch this fantastic film i'm really excited to see what isabel sandoval does next um i think she's very talented Uh, This week for Culture Notes, we have just a single TikTok, um, (laughs) or a TikTok account, rather. So there is this uh, video that has been making the rounds, uh, blowing up on TikTok and on Twitter and stuff. Essentially, someone's husband, this TikTok user, the video bunker, um, their husband built a video rental store in their basement. Yeah. And if you watch the video, which we will link in the description, in our show notes, etc., um, you will see this thing in the basement. It legit looks like a video rental store. Mm-hmm. Throwback completely. Yeah. And it's because a video rental store ha- was closed, right? So they had all the shelving and the racks and stuff. So he took those and he put them in the basement and it is perfect. It is, it looks exactly like one. As the video continues, she goes to the back and there's like a screening room with like, 
games consoles and whatever. Fantastic. Just, you know, in, in the culture of me and who, firmly under that bracket, basically. This speaks to Jenny and I because we grew up knowing Blockbuster and knowing video stores. So it's been a huge thing for millennial Twitter. I don't think Gen Z really understands exactly how important this culture is to us. What did you grow up with? Did you grow, were you a Blockbuster head or were you something else? From what I remember, Blockbuster was kind of pricey, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so what my family used to, we used to always go to this store. I don't, I think it might have been a tiny chain mammoth video. It was just like, uh, right near our, our local sort of suburban grocery store. Go there like every, every couple of weeks, every, you know, maybe once or twice a month, get some, DVDs, get some video games too. They had video games that you could rent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that was like definitely a highlight of those childhood years from what I remember. And this was up until I guess things started winding down. Um, maybe when I got to like middle school, but yeah, yeah, I loved it a lot. What about you? Um, I think I went to Blockbuster three times in my entire life. Mm. We didn't have anything else. Or I didn't know of anything else in London. Because of the same thing. It was too expensive. Yeah. And because we didn't really have anything other than Blockbuster, what we relied upon were the illegal DVDs. So that would be mm. my thing. Did you guys have that? Did you guys have like people walking in with a whole bunch of DVDs and like being like, what do you want? Not in the suburbs, at least. Probably yeah, it's so different for people who grew up in, in, the, in city. the city. Yeah, yeah. so that, that was it for us, really. We would, like, some guy would walk into either the Turkish store that we were at um, and just, like, walk around and be like, hey, do you guys want DVDs? And and then he'd have, like, he'd fan them out in his hand so you'd know uh, what films were on there. And then you just, I don't know how much we'd pay. I think it was, like, five pounds or something like that. But I'd, I'd rarely ever get new releases unless they were on those illegal DVDs that we'd gotten in the grocery store. Um, mm. Yeah. Now that you mention it, like in the, the Chinese store, like the, the Chinese like weekend like language school we went to, uh, yeah. yeah, there are definitely some of those DVDs going around. Yeah, just like the bootleg uh, shit. And like regular yeah. sales. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, but yeah, I remember. So basically, like sometimes you get some new stuff, but often you'd like return to some old favorites mm-hmm. as a kid. I loved any of like the Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen like movies they oh, made real? when when they were like preteens. I guess I must have been like eight or seven or whatever while they were they seemed so grown up at like the age of twelve or thirteen. Yeah. Those are some favorites. And then I loved watching my brother play the the rented like Mario games for mm-hmm. like I don't even know what N sixty four yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. I had an N sixty four, yeah. For my brother, yeah. too. Yeah, those are my go-tos uh, in terms of childhood, like, video rentals and game rentals. Yeah. Uh, life. Life, man. Just take Full me back circle. to the simple times of browsing stuff in Blockbuster and feeling away because my dad was like, get the fuck out. We're not, we can't afford this <laughs> shit. I remember, so I remember for my 13th birthday, I went to go see The Matrix Reloaded because it had just come out. I think that's correct. That if my memory is like that fucked up, it's going to be a problem. But then afterwards, after we'd gone to see that, I was also treated to a blockbuster trip. Um, mm. and I got the first Matrix really film. Special. Yeah. So I, 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 bought, I got the first Matrix film, but then I was also treated to butter kiss top, uh, toffee popcorn. Did you guys have that here? Do you have that here? No. Wait, what is that? It's like toffee covered popcorn. 
basically. Well, I guess we do have that, but I guess, yeah. well, we have caramel popcorn. Yeah, it's is basically that, that. the same? Yeah, okay. I think it's basically that. So I got that and that was like so, ex- like my, I remember my dad just being like, all right, you're not getting anything <laughs> until New Year's. Yeah, it's a fun memory, man. It's very rarely do the kids understand anymore what a treat it is to be browsing, man, oh like God. in person. A huge shout out to this woman and her husband, man. I hope yeah. I hope you're dicking him. Di- <laughs> She's not going to be the one dicking him down. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope you're getting dicked down also on top of this. It's I mean, and if you don't, this is a great replacement for sex. Shout out to husbands that build things everywhere. You know? Yeah, good. Some good quarantine outcomes. And it's funny because the the woman in the video, she was like, you know, he did this instead of like fixing our kitchen counters, our kitchen cabinets, or whatever. Fuck the kitchen. I, I would counter, argue bitch. this is even better. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> um, so we'll link the video. But although I'm sure many of you have seen it already, um, otherwise, I guess that's it for our trip down nostalgia lane. And that's what we've been watching this week. Old bitches stay winning. <laughs> if you're losing, actually, I guess. I'm sorry. <laughs> If you have anything that you think we should check out, and seriously, thank you so much to everyone who has been sending suggestions. We would love to hear more because a bit of a dry spell right now. Yeah, um, please feel free to email us, criticismsdead at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter, Instagram. We're on every channel, I guess. Um, otherwise, feel free to subscribe to our newsletter, criticismisdead.substack.com to get extra links as well as kind of like written summaries of things that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Tell a friend about us. Rate, review, uh, five stars, uh, ten stars, whatever. <laughs> like, the highest you can go. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Criticism Instead is produced by Penny Keskin Liu and Jenny Ji Chung. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.